dear congregation, I hope to set before you today, or perhaps better to say the scripture sets before us today, three portraits from the early church. And on the outline at the top there, you see the text, three texts uh, this morning, each of them pertaining to each of these different portraits. The first is Saul, and we read in verse 3 that Saul was ravaging the church, destroying, ruining the church. The second text is, your heart is not right before God, because this brings before us the portrait of Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician. And the third text then brings, sets before us this eunuch, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. So let's begin then with Saul. Saul is the first portrait that is set before us. Now, my friends, Saul is a student of Gamaliel, a zealous student of the law, thoroughly, thoroughly uh, entrenched in Judaism. And you might say he, he's attending the most influential seminary that could be found at that time. Gamaliel was a man, uh, when, when Gamaliel died, he was so respected that they said when Gamaliel died, scholarship died, or the study of the law died. Of course, it didn't really die, but again, they, they respected the man so highly. And Paul sat at his feet. And now you can imagine that as Paul in Jerusalem sees what's taking place, when he sees uh, all the uproar that is surrounding the preaching of the Gospels, the healing of this lame man, right, when he sees Stephen arrested, when he sees Stephen stoned, right? And remember, Saul was given charge to watch over the garments as Stephen was stoned. His soul was stirred within him to defend the religion of his fathers. And so we read that Saul began a great persecution. And now I uh, will set before you, my friends. Well, first let me say something about the Samaritans. So the Samaritans... Saul begins to preach. Saul begins to persecute these Christian people. And what is the effect of that? That as Saul begins to clamp down, as he begins to arrest these people, as he begins to go from house to house, as it says in verse 3, from house to house, in other words, he left no stone unturned, what did the Christians do? They began to scatter. They began to scatter to the, to the different areas around about Jerusalem to get away from this persecution, to avoid getting arrested by Saul. Some of them even go to Samaria. That's what we read about Philip. That Philip went to the city of Samaria. Now the Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans? When the ten tribes were taken off by the king of Assyria uh, in, in the year 722, remember the, the exile, right? They were all conquered and they were all captured and dragged off to Assyria. Well, the king of Assyria needed to populate that land with, with something. In fact, in fact, you can read about this in the book of the Kings. He needed people to live there, otherwise the land would just become wild. So he actually imported some of his own people to live in the land of where the ten tribes were. Well, these, ten, these people that uh, the king of Assyria imported into that country began to mingle and to intermarry with the Jews who were left behind. And that made this kind of mixed race. Right? And again, this, this, uh, this gets all into the, you know, the, the whole issue of race didn't arise in our own time. Right, It was a big issue back then, too. And these were mixed race people. And they believed that uh, they, too, were the proper 
ancestors, you might say, and the proper uh, adherents, can I say it that way, of the Jewish religion. So they had a good deal of tension with the Jews in Jerusalem. Because, of course, the Jews in Jerusalem said that God was worshipped in Jerusalem. But these people said, no, God is worshipped by us. We are the true uh, descendants of the Jewish people. And so they set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And, of course, as time went on, the hatred and malice between these two groups of people, the Jews and the Samaritans, got hotter and hotter. And it was, it was vicious. Well, as a result of Paul's as a result of Saul, again, later he became Paul, as a result of Saul's persecution, these people scattered to the villages of Judea, and Philip even comes to the city of Samaria, and he preaches to the Samaritans. And my friends, you can imagine that in the mind of Philip, as he, as he works through this transition, again, out of the old religion of Judaism, as we've talked about in previous sermons, and into the Christianity of Christ, that thought must come to him. These Samaritan people do not need to become Jews to be saved. They don't need to travel to the Jerusalem temple. They don't need to bring a sacrifice. Because Christ is the one sacrifice that put an end to all sacrifices. Well, then why shouldn't I preach to these people, says Philip in his mind. Why would I only preach to the, to the Jewish people? These are people too. And if salvation is all in Christ... Again, do you see how his mind, again, I'm, I'm speculating somewhat here, right? But how his mind must have worked as he began to work through this issue that there was no reason he shouldn't preach the gospel even to these hated Samaritans because after all, salvation was all in Christ. A Samaritan didn't need to become a Jew like Ruth the Moabitess had to become a Jew in order to be saved. But with the coming of Christ and with the coming of the kingdom of God, why, they just needed to put their trust in Jesus. And they were saved, and all their sins were forgiven them. And so Philip begins to preach to the Samaritans. I put that text on the outline there. Jesus himself said, And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. You wonder if a verse like that was in the mind of Philip as he, as he began to preach to the Samaritans. I don't know that he actually went to the city of Samaria with the intent to preach the gospel there. But as a result of Saul's persecution, he, he fled, he left the city, and he found himself in Samaria. And I imagine him saying to himself, well, here I am. Why shouldn't I preach the gospel here? What a beautiful thing, my friends, that we read that Philip begins to preach Jesus to these people. But the first portrait I want to set before you is not Philip, but Saul. Because Saul figures so large in the Bible generally. And if you look at my application there, I have that verse from Psalm 76 and verse 10. For the wrath of man shall praise thee. Well, Saul was full of wrath, wasn't he? He was full of anger, full of zeal against the people of God. And yet that very wrath, that very zeal against the true people of God, is what drove these Christians out into the villages and even drove Philip out into the city of Samaria. The wrath of man shall praise thee. Paul's wrath worked for the furtherance of the gospel. Do you see that? I think, my friends, the application here is that we praise God for his providence, for his wisdom and his providence. 
that God had the gospel go out in, in, the, in, in, a, in the very opposite way we could imagine. Saul's only intent was to crush the Christians, to silence them, to put them in prison. And in God's providence, it works out that the gospel goes even to the hated Samaritans. I have to think, my friends, that later in his life, I don't know if Paul, if he wept or if he laughed, laughed at his own folly, or if he wept at all that he had done to crush the Christians. And yet when he looked at the providence of God and saw what God did. You know, in the book of Acts, I told you when we started this series, my friends, that in Acts 1 and verse 8, we have the, the whole theme of the book of Acts. Acts 1 verse 8 says, But you, this is Jesus speaking to the apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. Now we've already seen that, right? But now, Jesus went on and said, And in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now we're not that far yet, to the remotest parts of the earth. But in this chapter, we've come to Judea, right? Because the Christians fled out of the city of Jerusalem and went to the surrounding villages for safety. And Samaria. Philip goes as far as the city of Samaria and preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. Isn't that amazing, my friends, how God's providence works? That even the wrath of this man worked to the praise of God and the extension of his kingdom. So that's the first portrait I want to set before you this morning. Saul raging against the church and God sitting in the heavens. And he laughs. He laughs at the folly of man because he used the wrath of that man to extend the gospel to the villages of Judea and Samaria. That's the first portrait. I move to my second portrait now. The second portrait that the Word of God gives us this morning is this man named Simon. Now, my friends, we have already had Ananias and Sapphira, who were hypocrites in the church of God. They professed to believe in Christ, and yet their heart was not right before God. Now, my friends, the Holy Spirit has given us this account of Simon the magician, Simon the sorcerer, to show us, it's a terrible thought, isn't it? That hypocrisy can even come into the leadership of the church. Even to what today we would call the influencers, right? The people with influence. The people with power. The people with a platform. Hypocrisy extends even to them. In fact, the text seems to go to great lengths to show the similarities between Simon and Philip. I put these in the outline so we could go through them in detail. But I want you to see this. So, both Philip and Simon do wonders. If you look in Acts 8 and verse 6, right at the end of verse 6, the people see and hear the signs which Philip was performing. So, Philip is doing miracles. But we read in verse 11. Verse 11, And they were giving him, that is Simon, attention, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. So they're both doing... Now again, there's a different word there between signs and magic arts, so there's a, a small distinction there, but still they're both doing things that cause people wonder and astonishment. I, I, would, I would question whether Simon was really doing real miracles. I don't think he was. But at any rate, 
visibly to the, to the people, it appears that they're both doing marvelous things. And, and the text, again, points that out very explicitly. Now, let's go back to verse 6, because we also read in, verse, in chapter 8 and verse 6 that there were crowds. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip. But if we go to verse 10, we read, And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him. So there are crowds also gathering around Simon, just as they gathered around Philip. Now, if we go back to verse 6 again, we read that the text makes clear that the crowds listened closely. The crowds were with one accord, giving attention to what was said by Philip. They listened intently. They hung on his every word. But again, if we go back to verse 10 again, we find that the same crowds, and they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him. Again, I found it striking as I studied this passage, these parallels between Philip and Simon, and how, how, how accurately Simon was able to mimic, even though he was a fraud, he was mimicking and imitating Philip to such an extent that to the human eye, they were virtually indistinguishable. Furthermore, we have in verse 10 that uh, uh, Simon is called, at the end of verse 10, this man is what is called the great power of God. That word power there. But I find the same word used in verse 13. where are talking about Philip. It says that Simon observed Philip doing signs and great miracles. And that word great miracles there is, is actually the same word as power as you had before. So signs and powers. Again, you have even a uh, the same word used to show the, 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 the similarity between Simon and Philip. And finally, they both amaze. Acts 8, verse 9, we read that Simon astonished the people of Samaria. And then in verse 13, we read, again, uh, Simon observing Philip, that he was, at least Simon was, and we would assume the rest of the crowds were also constantly amazed. The same word, though. The same word, amazed. These crowds are amazed at both Simon and Philip. Well, again, this brings to our attention, just as Ananias and Sapphira did, the presence of hypocrites in the church and how closely they, they and how indistinguishable they are from the true people of God. Now, this is a very disturbing thing for us, isn't it? The Westminster Confession says the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. The purest churches, now I don't know if we could claim to be one of the purest churches, I don't think we would be so presumptuous, but if the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, my friends, and certainly ours is as well. That's why in theology we make a distinction, don't we, between the visible church and the invisible church, right? Children, I think you probably remember this from your catechism instruction, right? There's the visible church, which we see with our eye. These are all the people who profess to believe and to be followers of Jesus Christ. But Scripture also teaches us to distinguish an invisible church, right? That there is the true people of God who are really Christians. That not everyone who names the name of Christ really is a Christian. Certainly Simon the magician was not. Now, we can also uh, see in this chapter that so indistinguishable is the hypocrite from the true child of God, that even the apostles themselves didn't recognize it. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe they did have their suspicions. 
But at least we know that the, the text says that Simon believed and was baptized. That means that the, the apostles, with all the gifts that God had given them, with the, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, such as no one in our midst can claim to have, they received Simon the magician into the church and even gave him the rite of baptism. They said, I baptize you into the name of Jesus Christ. They did not try, even if they did have their suspicions, and the text says nothing about that, but even if they did have their suspicions, they did not try to pull that tear, that, that, that weed, out of the wheat field, as Jesus had commanded, right? That we're not to try to pull the tares out from the wheat, lest we pull the weed out itself. So they accepted this man's confession for what it was. They received him into the church, and he received the baptism. And yet, for all that, my friends, this man made it clear to the apostles that his heart was not right with God. And Peter says so. Now, I find that there's a good deal of resistance to that in the Christian church today. That people get very offended very quickly when pastors preach in such a way that Christians are led to reflect on themselves and to look within themselves and to even ask themselves the question, is it right with my soul? Am I right with God? But I think the, the, the application on this particular portrait that is given us in Scripture, my friends, certainly is that at times in the life of every Christian, we should take our heart, set it on the table, and dissect it. Heart surgery. Now, I didn't say that you should take your neighbor's heart and dissect his heart or her heart. You can't know his heart. You have a hard enough time knowing your own heart. But God has given you the ability to know your own heart and to set your heart on the operating table, as it were, and to dissect it. Times of heart surgery. If the purest churches under heaven even this church, this Pentecostal church, right? And I mean Pentecostal in the sense of, right, the, the Spirit of God was upon them in, in a unique way that has never been repeated, probably, in the history of the church. That even in this pure church, there was this mixture. And not just Ananias and Sapphira, but the man standing in the pulpit. The man that was astonishing the people. The man that was leading the people. Then certainly it behooves us to take our heart and to dissect it. How can we do that, my friends? How do we do that successfully? Well, we take the word of God. We ask ourselves, what are the things that I love the most? Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also, our Savior taught us. What are the things I love the most? When I have time that is free, when I'm not under any obligation to do this or to that, what are the things that I naturally gravitate towards? In the youth group, we always come up with a subject of music. And for a very good reason. Because music is kind of the language of a person's heart. So let me bring it out of the youth group and lay it before all of you as well. What is the music that you enjoy listening to? Now you can say, well, really, is this about music? Well, music, my friends, is not just something that we, you know, we don't sing about, about things that are just routine, right? We sing about the things we love the most. So not just the young people today, certainly the young people, but let me ask all of us, what is, that, what is the thing that makes our hearts sing? Again, heart surgery. 
Another thing that we can do, my friends, as we engage in this, is take the list that we are given in Scripture. Paul gave us a list of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, and so on and so forth. Again, lay your heart on the table. Lay next to it the list of the fruits of the Spirit. And weigh your heart. You can take the Ten Commandments and a hundred other things in Scripture. The whole book of 1 John is full of these tests given us by the Spirit of God to test ourselves. Now, my friends, as quickly as I say this about these times of heart surgery, am I an Ananias? Am I a Sapphira? Am I a Simon the Magician? This is not something that we should do all the time. Like I say, there are those regular times in the life of God's people when we should do that, certainly as often as we have the Lord's Supper, right? We are called to have a time of self-examination before each celebration of communion. But that's not the whole Christian life. Again, everything gets pushed to extremes, right? And even as there are people who never examine their own heart, never ask themselves these difficult questions, so there are people who do nothing but ask these questions, who wallow in in self-introspection day after day, and who are dragged down by this constant introspection into their own life and by constant agonizing over the question, am I really a Christian? I must be a Simon the Magician. I must be an Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, my friends, that's not consistent with what the Scripture teaches us. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. So yes, there are those times, but let's, let's keep this in balance, right? That there are, there are those times when we, when we place our heart on the table and we ask ourselves these hard questions. In the book of Acts, I think we've had it twice now in Ananias and Sapphira, and again, in Simon the Magician. But let us be careful that we don't fly into another. Satan would just as soon have us there too, where we do nothing but fret and stew over our our state before God. In fact, my friends, let me just close this by saying every time we engage in this exercise of self-examination, we always fail. In one sense, right? We always fail. The best Christian amongst us confesses that in many ways his heart is not right with God. Even if he, and certainly we would confess that our heart is right with God in the sense that we are believing in him, we are justified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and yet there's a great deal of impurity in our heart. And so in that sense, we always fail. And that very failure leads us to fly to the Savior again. And I think we have that right in here. Because Peter doesn't say, Simon, get out of this church. You have no business here. He doesn't say that. He gives them some pretty sharp words. You have no part or portion in this matter. Your heart is not right before God, but verse 22, therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. There's forgiveness. And so my friends, every time we place our heart on the table, every time we see the deficiencies in our life and walk with God, it leads us to the Savior. It leads us back to Christ. And that is always a helpful thing, my friends, in our life. And we repent. We see the sins that we commit, and we repent of them. We hate them. We put them to death, and we flee to the Savior for forgiveness. In fact, my friends, in so many ways, the Christian life is that circle of seeing my own insufficiency, seeing my own sin, and seeing my own guilt, which leads me to Christ, and back again, and back again. That's the happy life of the Christian, constantly returning to Christ, traveling to Christ day after day, to find forgiveness in his blood. And so let us never, let us never conclude from Simon the Magician right, that, that we can never come to a real, solid, well-grounded assurance of us being a Christian. That would be a terrible conclusion to come to. 
but let our sin drive us to Christ. And when we come to Christ, we find a promise of forgiveness. And upon that basis, my friends, we can have a well-grounded assurance that we are truly Christians. And that we have a well-grounded, a well-warranted hope for eternal life. Well, I come now to the Ethiopian, this last portrait. The Ethiopian, my friends, a man excluded. That's what we have to say about the Ethiopian eunuch. He is a man excluded. What do I mean by that? In other words, he had no right. He had no right to God. No right of access and approach to God. At least so far as he understood. Here was a man who had become intrigued with the Jewish religion. With the, with the religion as true as it was, that would lead him to God. He had gone to Jerusalem. He'd gone to the temple. He had worshipped. He was so intrigued with it that he even had a book of the prophets with him. And he was reading in the book of Isaiah. But we have to say that he was a man excluded. He was on the outside. Why? First of all, he was not a Jew. He was not a Jew. So he had no right to come into the temple. He could only come so far and then the door was closed against him. He was excluded. Furthermore, his status as a eunuch. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, I won't read that now, but the, uh, you can put these two and two together. I trust, right, that the surgery that he would have had to become a eunuch would have disqualified him, according to the law of Moses, from ever entering into the temple of God. So you might say he had a double thing here that excluded him, that kept him from ever coming into the kingdom of God, from ever coming to God. And yet the Spirit of God is at work in this man, isn't he? Because as he goes, as he travels, he begins to read. Let's leave the eunuch for now. As he goes along that desolate road back to his home country. And here's Philip. Here's Philip in Samaria. And he's having tremendous success. People are coming to Christ. He's preaching. And he's so much success. And now God says to him, as only God can do, go. Go on the road that leads to, what verse is that? That is in verse 26. Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then we have a little detail here. A little detail that the Spirit of God includes for our edification. This is a desert road. In other words, it's a desolate road. My friends, can you imagine what must have gone on in the mind of Philip? Lord, why on earth are you taking me from Samaria, where there is such a wide field for my usefulness. People are hearing. People are believing. Right? Simon, the magician, was just exposed as a fraud. And now, I, you, you, to a road leading to Gaza, this, this desolate road, well, why would I go there? But we never read that Philip questions. But my friends, today we can rejoice in the fact that traveling along that desolate road was a man under the seal of God's election. There was a man who God had set his love on from a never-begun eternity. This was a man who God loved from, the from before the foundation of the world. And this was a man for whom Christ came and gave his blood. And now God in his providence sends Philip to preach Christ to that man. And that already is such a beautiful thing. And as, they, as, that, as that man travels down that road, with all his questions in his mind, and as he thinks about his own status as a Gentile, 
and as a eunuch, and how the, the doors are closed to him. And as his own heart begins to yearn for the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and as perhaps he felt the, the, the sin that also excluded him from the grace of God, Philip comes up. And there God sent Philip to this man. And Philip comes into that chariot. And my friends, oh, wouldn't you have loved to have sat in that chariot and heard that conversation? As this man, so thirsty for the word of God, so earnestly desiring to know how he could come into God's presence. And now there's Philip. And Philip comes and he begins to speak. And do you see that first question that comes from the mouth of the eunuch? That is exactly the right question. Verse 34. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Oh, did Philip ever latch on to that opportunity? Of whom? Oh, says Philip. I don't know what the eunuch's name was. But let me tell you about that man. And Philip preached to him Jesus. That must have been an amazing conversation, my friends, as the eyes of this eunuch begin to go open for the gospel. As the eyes of this eunuch go open to begin to realize the fact that, he was, that even though he may have been excluded by the religious establishment of his time, that God included him. That God says, no, you're not excluded. Even though you're a eunuch, even though you are a Gentile, God brings him in. And as the man's mind began to open to this reality, can you imagine what must have gone through his mind? This must have been an experience that he never could forget. And as they travel along, the Ethiopian eunuch asks another question. And again, my friends, a question so full of meaning. Look at that question, because as his mind opens to the reality of Jesus, he sees water. No doubt Philip must have said something about baptism. And he says, look, and can you imagine the excitement? I imagine him standing up in the chariot. I imagine him pointing and saying, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from being baptized? Yeah. What prevents you from being baptized? You are not a Jew. You cannot come into the temple courts of God. That's what prevents you from being, from coming to God. Second of all, you are a eunuch. And the law explicitly says that you are not allowed to come into the presence of God as a eunuch. What prevents you from being baptized? You can never be baptized. Furthermore, you've run up enough sin in God's accounts to cast you into hell forever. What prevents you? You, you could think the justice of God speaking to this man, saying you have no right to come to God. Why? You have everything against you. You sinned in God's book. You have no right to come to God, much less to be baptized. And I can imagine Philip. I can imagine Philip speaking at that moment and saying, unless. Unless. Unless, dear eunuch. Unless there was one who was despised and forsaken of men. Unless there was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
unless there was one who bore your griefs and carried your sorrows. Unless there was one who was smitten of God and afflicted. Unless there was one pierced through for your transgressions. One who was crushed for your iniquities. And the chastening, the punishment for our well-being fell upon him. Unless there was one who was scourged that we might be healed. Why, Mr. Eunuch, if there could be found such a one, why then there would be nothing to prevent you from being baptized. And I can imagine the eunuch saying, this is Jesus. Jesus, Philip, you said it yourself, is the one who God crucified on a cross. And he rose again from the dead. And we are witnesses of these things. We've seen that so many times in the book of Acts already. And so when the eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? Why, all these things that were listed against him. Now Philip can say, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the one who was pierced for your transgressions, the one of whom we read in this Isaiah 53, and who I was able to explain to you. Well now, Mr. Eunuch, if salvation is all in him, why eunuch, if you have to bring something of yourself, if you have to bring a little of your own good, if you have to make a change in your life first, well, then baptism's out of the question. But if there's one who's taken on all your guilt, if there's one who's taken all your sins, why, if that one took your punishment, why, then there's nothing to prevent you from being baptized. You can be baptized this moment. Oh, what a gospel must have been, a gospel preaching must have been in that chariot on that desolate road on the way to Gaza, my friends. Wouldn't you have liked to have heard that message? And wouldn't you have liked to have seen the scales falling from the eyes of Philip, or from us, uh, uh, the eunuch, as the truth of the gospel becomes clear to him? That in Jesus Christ, there was nothing, nothing at all preventing him from being baptized. That he could enter that water, and he could say, I give my life to Jesus. That he could take refuge in the wounds and in the blood of Christ. And have all the sin that prevented him from being baptized. It all washed away. His guilt removed. Can you imagine as that eunuch stood there in that water. And as that water flowed down over his head. What must have gone through his mind. As the eunuch took his life. Took everything that he had. And he gave it all into the hands of Christ. And he came out of that water a new man. A new man in Christ. I think that must have been unforgettable for him. I don't think that man ever forgot that day. That I think that he probably said that his life began on that day. When he stood in that water, on that desolate road, on the way to Gaza. And he entered and he was joined in a union with Jesus Christ. And when he represented that, now baptism is supposed to be a public thing. Oh, there was no one there on the road. But there him and Philip celebrated the glory of what God gives to his people. And everything that stood in the way, all the obstacles that prevented him from being baptized were taken away by the blood of Jesus Christ. My friends, what application can I make on this? Because it's so obvious, isn't it? That to those who are excluded, that to those whose sins cry out to heaven for justice and for punishment, their God in the gospel includes them. Their God, in the name of Jesus, takes away all those obstacles 
and brings into himself, brings into his own presence, brings into, adopts into his family those people who have nothing but reasons why they should not be adopted. But Christ resolves all that. The blood of Jesus takes all that away. And we can be baptized into the name of Jesus. My friends, would you take your Bible a minute and turn, please, as we close this message to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. Read with me here in Isaiah 56. I wonder that Philip moved also to explain this passage to the Ethiopian. Because in Isaiah 56, verse 3, God says through the prophet Isaiah, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. I think that's where the eunuch was initially. He was a man excluded. Surely the Lord will separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Right? That was a eunuch. He had no right to come into the temple of God. And then verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. I wonder, my friends, if that's why we don't know the name of this man. We're never told the, we're told the name of the queen that he served, but never the name of this eunuch. Why? Because I think he received a new name on that day. He received a place in the temple of God, even though he excluded himself. God included him. God gave him a name and a place within his walls, a memorial better than that of sons and daughters, better than that of the Jewish people. God gave him a name. And I wonder if that's not what also the John writes. He writes to the church. I think it was the church in Sardis. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Maybe that's why we don't know the name of this eunuch. Because on that day he received a new name in Christ. And John also says to the church of Laodicea, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. On that day, my friends, oh, that man received a name, a new name, perhaps the name of Christ, perhaps the name Christian. But the name of God was written, was stamped upon that man. This is my child, signified in baptism, the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. And God will recognize that name. When that eunuch, who always excluded himself, came and stood before God on that last great day when he died, God said to him, and God will say to him, that's my name. That's my child. He will be included. He may enter into my heavenly city. My friends, I pray that for the eunuch, that it will also be true of each one of us, that we also would have that new name written upon us, that would gain us entrance into the heavenly city. 
to God's glory. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, what a glorious wonder it is that to this man who excluded himself, to this man who could see no way to come into your courts, into your temple, into your presence, that there you have said to him in the blood of Jesus Christ, I baptize you. I give you my new name. The name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. A name that gives you full admission to the temple of God, to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. That with all the saints, you may come and worship in this heavenly city. And there he worships today, O God, with all the saints of God, many saints from this church as well. And they shout and they sing, glory and hallelujah to the name of our God, to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords and to the Lamb. I pray, O God, that one day we might join that happy assembly, that your name would be glorified in our lives here and in our worship in the city above. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Let's turn in the blue hymnal now to number 429. 429. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers around its head sublime. 429, the four verses.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.